Good evening. This is a special meeting of the San Francisco Commission on the Environment. The date is Tuesday, September 26th. The time is 5.05 p.m. Please note that the ringing and use of cell phones, pagers, and similar devices is prohibited. Please be advised that the chair may order the removal from the meeting room of anyone using a phone or similar device. For remote participants, please note that the ringing of cell phones can still happen virtually and is still prohibited. Please ensure your device is silenced. Public comment will be available for each item on the agenda. For comments on matters that are not on the agenda, there will be an opportunity for general public comment. Participants who wish to comment in person will be asked to come forward one by one and speak clearly into the mic. Each speaker will be allowed three minutes to speak. Opportunities for the public participating remotely may comment by calling into the meeting. Opportunities to speak during the public comment period are available via phone by calling 415-655-0001, entering access code 2664-232-9116, and the meeting password, SFGOV, that's S-F-G-O-V. When connected, dialed star 3 to be added to the speaker queue. Best practices are to call from a quiet location, speak clearly and slowly, and silence any other devices. Alternatively, members of the public may submit public comment by email to environment at sfgov.org. Comments submitted via email will be forwarded to the commissioners and will be included as part of the official file. I will now call the roll. President Don? Here. Vice President Juan? Here. Commissioner Bermejo is excused. Commissioner Hunter? Here. Commissioner Sullivan? Here. Commissioner Tompkins? Here. President Don, we have a quorum. Excellent. Next item, please. The next item is item two. President's welcome. This item is for discussion. We'll start with our land acknowledgement. The Commission on the Environment acknowledges that we occupy the unceded ancestral homeland of the Ramaytushaloni peoples, who are the original inhabitants of the San Francisco Peninsula. We recognize the Ramaytushaloni, understand the interconnectedness of all things, and have maintained harmony with nature for millennia. We honor the Ramaytushaloni peoples for their enduring commitment to Walrep, Mother Earth. As the indigenous protectors of this land, and in accordance with their traditions, the Ramatush Ohlone have never ceded, lost, nor forgotten their responsibilities as the caretakers of this place, as well as for all peoples who reside in their traditional territory. We recognize that we benefit from living and working on their traditional homeland. As uninvited guests, we affirm their sovereign rights as First Peoples and wish to pay our respects to the ancestors, elders, and relatives of the Ramatush community. As environmentalists, we recognize that we must embrace indigenous knowledge and in how we care for San Francisco and all its people. Commissioners, staff, members of the public, welcome to tonight's meeting. As we begin, I want to acknowledge that those who are currently affected from the wildfires burning in far northern California and Oregon are suffering right now. And even after a historically wet winter, bomb cyclones, as you might remember from earlier this year, that we've dealt with climate-fueled wildfires and air pollution that continue to impact our city. Last week, Stanford also published a study finding that wildfire smoke has eroded much of our nation's progress on air quality in recent decades, even as we do things like clean up our transportation fleet and a number of other electrification efforts. Clearly, the escalating severity and frequency of wildfires pose a threat not just to California, but other parts of the country. And the other thing to recognize, too, is that there are historically marginalized populations, underserved communities, that suffer disproportionately from those effects. This is all sobering news, but it should also motivate us to reach higher uh, uh, and work harder to implement our climate action plan and advance climate resilience throughout our city. San Francisco is counting on it. We have a packed agenda tonight. 
uh, with several key items. We'll kick off things with a presentation from the San Francisco Public Utilities Commission on the new water supply chapter of the Climate Action Plan. We'll also hear a pair of updates from the energy efficiency and construction and demolition programs on accomplishments from the prior year and their work ahead. And finally, we'll also uh, hear on our annual report from the integrated pest management team and have a review and vote on the proposed reduced risk pesticide list, our annual to-do. And before we begin, I want to extend a warm welcome to our newest commissioner, Angelique Tompkins, who's making her debut on the commission tonight. And Commissioner Tompkins, would you like to introduce yourself? Certainly. Thank you. Um, I'm so pleased to have joined this body and in, in, intend with all purpose to look forward to hearing from the communities um, here in San Francisco and doing the work of the Commission as identified. So thank you and, and thank you for being welcome tonight. We're happy to have you. And at this point, uh, are there any other Commissioner questions or comments on the President's welcome? If not, we'll move to public comment. We will begin with public comment here in the room. Once in-person comment has concluded, we'll proceed to remote public comment. Are there any members of the public or present in the room today who wish to speak? If so, please come forward one by one and speak clearly into the mic. Seeing none, we'll proceed to remote public comment. Members of the public who wish to make a public comment on this item should now press star three to be added to the queue. For those already on hold in the queue, please continue to wait until it is your turn to speak. And we do have one caller in the queue. Hello, caller. You're unmuted. Your three minutes begin now. Oh, hello. My name is Anastasia Glickstern, and here I'm asking that posting about herbicide spraying uh, will be done online. Like this, the uh, city code requires the signs. Um, to be posted three days before the spraying and the day four after. But, uh, you know, it would be nice to have it online so people can look it up. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. That, that's about it. I mean, just just please, it's, it's like strange that at this day and age, there is no online posting uh, and only physical signs on the slide. Thank you. Thank you for your comment. And seeing no additional callers in the queue, public comment on this item is closed. Thank you. Next item, please. The next item is item three, approval of minutes of the August 29, 2023 Commission on the Environment Special Meeting. The explanatory document is the August 29, 2023 Commission on the Environment Special Meeting draft minutes. This item is for discussion and action. Any discussion or changes to the minutes, commissioners? If not, do I hear a motion? I'll move approval. Uh, we have a motion from Commissioner Sullivan to move approval. Second. A second from Commissioner Hunter. Um, so hearing no further discussion, let's open it up to public comment then. Are there any members of the public who are present in the room to wish to comment on this item? Seeing none, we'll proceed to remote public comment. Members of the public who wish to make a public comment on this item should now press star three to be added to the queue. 
and seeing no callers in the queue, public comment on this item is closed. Uh, mm -hmm. Please call the roll, Kyle. President on. Aye. Vice President Wan. Aye. Commissioner Bermejo is excused. Commissioner Hunter. Aye. Commissioner Sullivan. Aye. Commissioner Tompkins. Aye. Uh, with that, the motion passes. Uh, thank you. Next item, please. All right, the next item is item four, general public comment. Members of the public may address the commission on matters that are within the commission's jurisdiction and are not on today's agenda. Are there any members of the public who are present in the room today who wish to speak? Seeing none, we'll proceed to remote public comment. Members of the public who wish to make a public comment on this item should now press star three to be added to the queue. And seeing no callers in the queue, public comment on this item is closed. All right, next item, please. All right, the next item is item five, presentation of the Commission on the Environment Environmental Service Award to Commissioner Emerita Johanna Wald. This item is for discussion. All right, I believe this is, uh, the honor is actually mine to introduce this award, and it's my pleasure to prevent, uh, present the Environmental Service Award to Johanna Wald. Uh, among San Francisco's long line of environmental leaders, few stand out like Johanna. And I can say this both from personal experience and working with her as a colleague on the Environment Commission, that she has a long and storied career of not only affecting issues on climate change, but even in a sense of place, the American West, its public lands, and of course, San Francisco itself. Her passion and commitment uh, has always been evident, you know, from her earlier times. So to read her biography out loud, she graduated from Cornell University and Yale Law School, and then joined the, the then small Natural Resources Defense Council, NRDC, and served for more than 40 years as a senior attorney and land program director. At NRDC, Johanna worked to strengthen biological diversity, safeguard endangered species, and protect America's open spaces for future generations. When Johanna retired from NRDC in 2015, she did so as one of the nation's leading experts on federal land and natural resources management, and a strong advocate for America's wildlife and wild lands. When Mayor Willie Brown appointed her to the commission in 2003, Johanna brought some of the same analytical rigor, judiciousness, and deep knowledge of environmental issues that distinguished her career at NRDC. And the other thing to note is since then, no, longer has served on the, uh, no one has served on the commission longer than Johanna has. For over 20 years, she helped guide San Francisco's Environment Department from one era to another and helped chart a path forward as her scope and complexity of its programs evolved. And at the commission meetings, Johanna always seemed to know precisely what to ask, what to analyze, and how to cu cut through the noise, you know, as we know, we deal with a lot of complex policy here at the department, and it's only, you know, often through Johanna's expertise we were able to diagnose a problem and bring us closer to a solution. This skill of hers was always Johanna's superpower, and we're very grateful to you for that. Johanna's had high expectations for her public servants, and she always knew how to hold the environment department to account. And if you were a department employee planning to present at a commission meeting, you knew you better be on your toes. Uh, and at the era of remote meetings, we also came to know of Johanna's weakness, if you'll allow me, Johanna. Your uh, Achilles heel was always WebEx, but you always took it in you know, good humor. I think you were able to soldier through through that very difficult time. And even throughout all that, you were able to grapple with the technology, as difficult as it was for me, too. I will admit to struggling with WebEx myself. 
you were able to still apply the same kind of rigor, wisdom that you've always had as commissioner uh, that we've come to appreciate at our meetings. And above all else, I don't think anybody here has ever doubted how intensely passionate you are, how much you believe in the public interest and to try to resolve these really difficult issues that we're still grappling with today around climate change. You're a true patriot, a dear friend of mine, and a colleague and an example to us all. Thank you and congratulations. Um, so with that, maybe I'll open it up. I do believe we also have Director Ju on the line as well, but maybe uh, if other commissioners too wanted to comment on all that as well, and or, yeah. Kudos, yeah, kudos all you say. I think Commissioner Wall is the most knowledgeable that I can see, I can always seek wisdom from you and advice on everything related to environment. And you're the most passionate and committed commissioner that I've been working with. It's my great honor that has been served the commission with you before. I'll, uh, <clears throat> I'll speak up. Um, j just the amount of human capital that this commission has lost w with Joanna's departure is just staggering. The, uh, I think I've only been on this council for 25% of the time that, to, to observe uh, Commissioner Wald, but it's just, just been so impressive to, to see the depth of knowledge that uh, Johanna had um, about everything that, that comes before this commission. Um, and whenever something tough would come before the commission, I think you know, we, would, we would all have comments, but we would all, all kind of look to see what jo Johanna said because she was always incisive, always on point, and almost always right. Um, and just, but beyond just the, the knowledge and the, the, the commitment to the environment, it was really just heartwarming to see Johanna's connection to the staff and her affection for the staff. And I think that was, that was, that was reciprocal. Um, last thing I'll say is that Joanna and I both live in the same neighborhood. We're both, we both live in Coal Valley. And um, the best part of, of the meetings that I would come to when we overlapped was that I, I, we got to carpool and I got a good 15 minutes at the end of every commission meeting to, uh, to spend time with Johanna. And I really, I miss, I miss that almost as much as anything. So, um, so, so happy to, to see you here today, Johanna, and to give you this well-deserved award. Uh, I won't belabor uh, the point any further. I will generally say it was a pleasure serving with you. I know people talked a lot about your expertise, but your passion and creativity when it came to this commission, asking questions that pushed us forward rather than just to ask a question as we often sometimes see. I think you demonstrated that you could serve this commission with grace, knowledge, and expertise that honestly we will all be striving for as we continue to try to fill your shoes. So with that, uh, do we have Director Ju on the line? We can also have Commissioner Wald say a few words. I do think that would be appropriate now in terms of timing. Maybe we should, Commissioner Wald, if you would like to uh, come up and speak before the commission. Before the commission. Hey, Director Ju, you're unmuted. Oh. Uh. Hey, uh, can you all hear me? Yes. Yes. Uh, so I just wanted to apologize, uh, Johanna, for not being there in person. Um, I'm attending the Carbon Neutral Cities Alliance meeting happening in Toronto. 
um, with cities from around the world. This is actually the first in-person meeting we've had of this group since the pandemic. Um, even then, just you know, across the nation in a different country, I still wanted to personally attend, uh, even virtually, just to say a few words. You know, our ability at San Francisco to be able to participate in organizations like the Carbon Neutral Cities Alliance and so many other organizations is in no smart, no small part thanks to your steadfast and strong voice on the commission where you've contributed uh, to so many important initiatives and policies that have advanced our city's environmental goals and also had an effect across the planet. You've been a mentor and role model, as you've heard from the, from the commission standpoint, you've been a mentor and role model to many of us in the department. Uh, and it extends even past this department in the environmental community. I can't I count on my hands the number of times I, I've had someone say to me, oh, and Johanna told me this uh, in speaking to other environmental leaders. And that's just a, a mark of the influence that you've had um, across this work. You know, I want to wish you the best in whatever you do in your future endeavor. Uh, we hope you will stay in touch with us uh, because you are family. And Johanna, thank you for your exceptional leadership, your contributions to the environment, the people of San Francisco. Thank you for everything you've done for this city and for the planet. So. Thank you. Thank you all. Thanks for those wonderful words. I'm really touched by what you've said, and it's a good thing I have my notes. Um, first, can I have more, slightly more than three minutes? Oh, yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> it's the first time I've been on this side uh, before this body. Uh, Serving on the San Francisco Environment Commission for all these years has been an extraordinary experience for me. I'm grateful to all the mayors who appointed and reappointed me from Mayor Brown to Mayor Breed. I'm grateful to the commission secretaries, Monica Fish, Anthony Valdez, and Kyle Weiner, with whom I've worked over the years with infinite patience Monica taught me how to have a policy committee meeting that was in compliance with San Francisco's complicated rules. With great good humor, Anthony kept me on track for a couple of years. And with Kyle, helped solve all those myriad technological <laughs> problems I seem to have with every single meeting of the commission or the policy committee, even before uh, the pandemic. I'm grateful to all the commissioner, commission members with whom I've served over the years, including Becky Evans, who's here and whose seat I took. You all have made significant and unique contributions to the work of the commission and the department, and it was an absolute pleasure for me to serve alongside of you. I'm grateful to the executive directors who I got to work with and learn from over the years, Jared Blumenfeld, Debbie Raffel, and Tyrone Jew. When the department was still relatively new and much smaller than it is now, Jared put the department on the map, literally 
in San Francisco and way beyond with his bold ideas and unwavering determination to bring them to life. Debbie created a culture of excellence and collaboration across the department and forged strong and effective bonds across city agencies, facilitating the huge number of substantive accomplishments during her tenure. And Tyrone, Tyrone inherited a department in turmoil and quickly and effectively moved to raise uh, staff morale and then succeeded in getting significant funds from the city for the first time ever, not once, but twice. What truly exceptional leaders each of these people have been, and what a privilege it's been for me to have a ringside seat as I watch the department grow and mature and change under their leadership. And last, but by no means least, I'm grateful to the staff of the department, the dedicated, talented, committed and so very able people who from the beginning of my time on the commission have worked so hard and so tirelessly on behalf of this city and its residents and whose hard work has made San Francisco the leader on so many critical issues across California, across the nation and indeed the world. The list of their substantive accomplishments over the years I've served on this commission is long and truly awe-inspiring and includes a host of landmark measures like the ban on single-serve plastic water bottles, the pharmaceutical take-back legislation, the CND ordinance and amendments, and the climate plan, to name just a few. As many of you have heard me say many times, all of us who live and work in this city are so lucky that we have everyone in the department working on our behalf to protect our public health and our environment. It's been an enormous privilege for me to serve on this commission, and I know I leave it and the department in good hands. Welcome, Commissioner Tompkins. Thank you all. Thank you so very much. I'm really grateful. Thank you again, Commissioner Wald. At this point, we'd like to invite attendees in the room to come up and speak uh, for Commissioner Wald, if they'd like. Good evening, Commissioners. I'm Debbie Raffel. And as I thought about Jo Johanna tonight, I said, well, what, what's that word I'm going to look for to describe her? So I looked up the definition for activist, and it said, a person who campaigns to bring about political or social change. Sounds pretty good. And then I looked advocate. What about an advocate? Well, that's a person who publicly supports or recommends a cause or policy. But those definitions of activist and advocate 
they just don't do it for me. They don't say Johanna because the Johanna we all know, she just wants to get shit done. Sorry, Kyle. You can <laughs> wipe that off the minutes. So she just wants to get stuff done. And when it comes to the city of San Francisco and the Department of the Environment, Johanna manages to be both cheerleader and agitator, both idealist and pragmatist, both the out-front architect and the behind-the-scenes supporter. Johanna is the provider of honest feedback, difficult truths, missing relationships, and new opportunities. As one of the four directors over the course of her tenure on the commission, I can say that in addition to these attributes, Johanna Wald is also a friend, someone who shares in the sorrows, the frustrations, and the joys of leadership. Honoring her today fills my heart, for I know that this award acknowledges what we all know to be true, that it has been a privilege to be in the presence of such deep wisdom and love, wisdom and love in service of this city and the planet. So thank you, my dear friend. Thank you, my friend and colleague, for all you bring to this world. And thank you, Commission, for recognizing someone as truly exceptional as Commissioner Johanna Wald. It's a truly hard act to follow. Uh, my name is Becky Evans. I was on the original commission before it was a charter commission. We were appointed by members of the Board of Supervisors, and there were representatives from the different city departments like Public Works and DPW. I know Johanna from before she was on the commission because we helped form the League of Conservation Voters in San Francisco. She is, you really should be giving her a cape, like a Superman's cape or a Superwoman's <laughs> cape, because she's that kind of an extraordinary woman resource, a person who cares about her friends, about the city, and about the environment. I would like also to bring a message from Ruth Gravanis, who's a former commissioner. Some of you will know her. She was unable to come tonight, but she asked me to express her thanks for Johanna's wisdom, the fact that she was a mentor and was such a leader for the city. And I wish you all well, and I would like to see more about what you're doing in the press. I don't know who does that, but I think that there are environmental groups across the city uh, and I will say, unfortunately, the Sierra Club doesn't give you the kind of support it should, but I think if you need to get support for, for budgets and things like that, be sure to reach out to some of us because we're there and we care. Thank you very much. Thank you, Commissioner Evans. <laughs> Anyone else? I see someone rushing on up. Ah. Good evening, Commissioners. Peter Brasto, Senior Biodiversity Coordinator. Thought I'd come up and give a little staff perspective. Um, I won't uh, think I could speak for the staff for sure, but certainly for me, um, I felt incredibly supported by having Johanna on the commission. Um, we're a program of two now, 
but when Johanna was the whole time Johanna was on the commission, we were a program of one, so that was like one one hundredth of the department. Um, but still, she gave um, you know uh, due and and attention and that same scrutiny to the work that I did and the presentations that I made at the policy committee and to this commission. Um, so I'm just so appreciative of all of all her support all these years, and. Um, and yeah, I guess that's it. So congratulations, Johanna, on, on an incredible career and, and on this amazing tenure and this record of having so many years on the commission. Cheers. So if there's no other comment in the room, maybe we can move to public comment at this time. And seeing no additional public comment in the room, we'll open it up to remote public comment. Members of the public participating remotely who wish to make a comment on this item should now press star three to be added to the queue. And seeing no callers in the queue, public comment on this item is closed. All right, uh, so at this moment, we're gonna go pose for a portrait with uh, Commissioner Wall. So if the commission will join me at our usual wall. So stick around for the next item, and we're just going to move to it now. All right, the next item is item six, review and vote on the Commission on the Environment Environmental Service Award name. This item is for discussion and possible action. So commissioners, we have an action item before you today, uh, and I believe uh, Commissioner Sullivan might be speaking on this in particular. Yes, um, it gives me, um, it's an honor and it gives me great pleasure to, uh, to move to rename our Environmental Service Award, uh, not just today, but from now on, every time we give this award in the future, it will remind us of our wise and wonderful and irreplaceable colleague, 
because we're going to rename the, the, the award the Johanna Wald Environmental Service Award. That was a motion, so we need a second. It will be my greatest pressure to support it. Second. Any other discussion? I will say in advance, I'm very happy to vote for this as well. Uh, but I think we need to do our usual procedure, uh, which is, uh, first of all, making sure no other discussion. If not, then we'll move to public comment. Are there any members of the public or president in the room today wish to speak? Perhaps, Commissioner. And seeing one, we'll proceed to remote public comment. Members of the public who wish to make a public comment on this item should now press star three to be added to the queue. And seeing no callers in the queue, public comment on this item is closed. Please call the roll. Oh, yes. Uh, Commissioner Wald. I, I think it would be nice if you spoke a few words. And given that you've given 20 years of service to the city, <laughs> we can afford you a few more seconds. We'll wave the three-minute rule. I will keep this extremely brief, but I want to say thank you for this incredible and totally unexpected uh, honor. I mean, it was beyond my imagination, and I thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. From the bottom of my heart. Thank you, Commissioner Wong. With that, please call the roll call. President Nunn? Aye. Vice President Wan? Aye. Commissioner Bermejo is excused. Commissioner Hunter? Aye. Commissioner Sullivan? Aye. Commissioner Tompkins? Aye. With that, the award is renamed. Congratulations again. All right. Well, that was the fun part of today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm teasing. The staff presentations we're very much looking forward to. But uh, next item, please. <laughs> All right, the next item is item four, general public comment. Um, oh, sorry, excuse me. Uh, the next item is item seven, review and vote on whether to approve resolution file 2023-11-COE, resolution amending Environment Department Energy Efficiency Contract. The speaker is Cara Batista Rao, Senior Energy Specialist. The explanatory document is the resolution file 2023-11-COE. This item is for discussion and possible action. So I believe our speaker is Kara. Oh, yes. Hello. Good evening, commissioners. I'm Kara Batista Rao, Senior Energy Specialist, and I'm presenting on an energy efficiency contract amendment tonight. Uh, next slide. The San Francisco Environment Department contracts with TRC Engineers Incorporated to implement the Bayron Business Program. And this program provides incentives for qualifying energy efficiency upgrades to commercial buildings. Under this contract, TRC's scope of work includes issuing incentive payments, supporting regional marketing efforts, providing technical assistance, and other tasks. And we receive funding for this program and this contract through the Bay Area Regional Energy Network via the California Public Utilities Commission. Our existing contract with TRC engineers is $4.1 million. And tonight we're asking to modify the contract in two ways. Um, the first is to extend the term of the contract by two years from the current end date of October 18th, 2023. 
to a new end date of October 18th, 2025. And the second modification is to increase the budget in the contract for incentives by $4,593,000. And these two modifications will help to ensure the continued operation of the Bayron Business Rebate Program and will also allow us to serve more businesses by increasing the budget available for incentive payments. Um, so with that, I'm happy to take any questions. Just what is the current incentives budget, the overall amount? Um, right now, it's about $2.9 million in the contract. And so this addition would bring it up to $7.5 million for incentives. Any other questions, concerns? So again, this is an action item. Um, could I have a motion to approve this resolution? Motion. I have a motion from Commissioner Juan. Uh, do I have a second? Second. Second from Commissioner Hunter. With that, we'll open it up to public comment. Are there any members of the public or present in the room today who wish to comment on this item? And seeing none, we'll proceed to remote public comment. Members of the public participating remotely who wish to make a public comment on this item should now press star three to be added to the queue. And seeing none, public comment on this item is closed. Roll call vote, please. President on. Aye. Vice President Juan. Aye. Commissioner Bermejo is excused. Commissioner Hunter. Aye. Commissioner Sullivan. Aye. Commissioner Tompkins. Aye. That the resolution passes. Uh, thank you again, Kara. Uh, next item, please. All right, the next item is item eight, presentation on the water chapter of the Climate Action Plan. The sponsor is Richard Chen, Senior Environmental Specialist, Environment Department. The speakers are Paula Keogh, Director of Water Resources, San Francisco Public Utilities Commission. Manisha Kotari, Alternative Water Supply Program Manager, San Francisco Public Utilities Commission. And Julie Ortiz, Water Conservation Manager, San Francisco Public Utilities Commission. The explanatory document is the 2023 Water Supply Addendum. This item is for discussion. Charles, you're replacing Richard today? I am replacing uh, Rich Chen, Charles Sheehan, Policy and Public Affairs Manager, um, substituting in for Rich, who is um, out sick today and cannot join us, so I will attempt to fulfill fill his uh, big shoes. Um, since we passed the Climate Action Plan, and I believe late um, 2021, um, we have been hard at work to add a water chapter to the Climate Action Plan because, as we know, as our climate changes, our water supply will be impacted, and we must prepare for those changes. And so we have been collaborating with the SFPUC um, for a little over a year, a um, certain amount of time, and we've been holding public workshops with them. Um, we've been kind of exploring the issues from their side, the water side, and we've put them through our processes, racial equity scans, using our RSEAT tool. And it's been a joint collaborative effort to get to this point. And so we are pleased that we can uh, present to you the new water uh, addendum chapter of the Climate Action Plan. And I would like to introduce former colleagues, because I used to be at the SFPUC for nine years. Um, and so it gives me pleasure to bring up my former colleagues. Um, um, Manisha Kothari and Julie Ortiz from our water team, and they are going to um, 
tell you what we've been working on for the past year and a half. So I'll leave it to them. Come on up. Thank you. Good evening, commissioners. Um, I wanted to note that unfortunately Paula Kehoe, Director of Water Resources, is out sick. So I'm subbing for her portion of this presentation. And I believe we have some slides. So as Charles noted, uh, water is a precious resource, one of our most essential, but there are many challenges to securing and ensuring a future resilient supply, including climate change um, from drought, earthquakes, other natural disasters, as well as aging infrastructure. We're an old city with a lot of old pipes, um, growth, regulatory requirements um, for many things as well are all challenges. Next slide, please. So given that, um, our agency has been looking at new ways to approach and secure um, and ensure a resilient future water supply, and that includes looking at things a little bit differently through a, what we call a one water lens. So rather than the traditional way of viewing water in, we use water, then it goes out as, as wastewater, uh, we're looking at ways to more holistically reuse that water, uh, find energy benefits as well, and again, looking at it through a complete one water lens. Next slide, please. So that really also um, is a broad overlay for our water supply program, uh, which is focused on extending and preserving our water supplies um, as much as possible, and that's through demand management or conservation using less water, as well as finding ways to develop sustainable new water supplies through groundwater sources, uh, recycled water uh, projects, um, reusing water within buildings on site, um, finding new innovations to come up with new supplies, and also um, a growing and robust program of uh, planning for alternative water supply projects. Next slide, please. Our overarching goals for our water supply program are looking at diversifying uh, our supplies both during dry times and non-dry times, and by diversifying, um, uh, diversifying uh, a reliance on a single regional system. Uh, also looking at ways that we can improve the use of new water sources um, from uh, uh, demand management through drought management, and again, including groundwater, recycled water sources, um, on-site uh, reuse, water transfers, and other efforts. And then lastly, really to, to maintain the fact that we have a gravity-driven uh, regional water system as our primary source of supply. Next slide, please. So in uh, working with your staff to add the water supply section to the Climate Action Plan, we looked at uh, three key strategies, and we're going to briefly go over those in our presentation this evening. Uh, the first is to invest and implement uh, demand management programs, conservation programs. The second is to invest and implement water supply and augmentation programs. 
And the third is to develop and implement innovative programs to help reduce water use and come up with efficient, creative ways um, for new supplies. Next slide. So this was my area as the water conservation manager with SFPUC. Um, I outlined strategy one, which is invest and implement demand management programs. And the PUC rain or shine has long had a comprehensive conservation program for many decades. Um, we have uh, a mix of incentives and services and assistance and education to help our retail customers use water efficiently. We have developed that based on best practices, studies we've done in the field, new and developing technologies, and it has led um, uh, and contributed to San Francisco having among the lowest per capita water use in California. Um, and we continue that program even with low water use because we know there's still opportunities to save. Next slide, please. We have a conservation planning process and program and <clears throat> that's explained in the water supply chapter, uh, but we develop every year or we develop a master plan to guide our conservation efforts. Uh, we formally update that every five years. It's uh, posted and shared online as um, in the form of our water conservation plan. Uh, but when we update it, we go back through and we look at all the assistance measures and the incentives we offer. We estimate and forecast water savings and we make updates from that. There's a link uh, in the presentation slides to where you can find that. And we're in, uh, we'll soon be starting the process of creating our 2025 plan. Next slide, please. Overall, our conservation program includes uh, a mix of incentives. Um, these are financial incentives to encourage uh, customers and water users to replace old water wasting equipment or fixtures or processes with more efficient ones. Uh, we also offer what we call assistance, where we have staff resources to go on site and help customers look for leaks, repair leaks, um, uh, implement more water efficient strategies. We also have a whole host of tools, including platforms where customers can view their water use down to the hourly level. We issue leak alerts if we believe uh, customers may have a leak or some other water use uh, problem. We do a wide range of education outreach. And um, in the case where voluntarily we can't encourage water efficiency, there are, of course, a host of mandates that require it. Um, I'm going to turn it over at this point to Manisha to pick up on strategy two. Thank you, Julie, and good evening, commissioners. I will talk about strategies two and three. Next slide, please. So as Julie uh, mentioned, our gravity-driven water supply, surface water supply, is our primary water supply and the backbone of what we uh, deliver to our customers in San Francisco and around the Bay Area. But um, as we look at the future and we look at droughts really becoming the new normal, um, as we look at climate change, in the last 20 years, the droughts have been more frequent than the preceding 100 years. So 
really behooves us to, uh, in, in order to be resilient for a water supply future, to really think about sustainable drought-proof supplies and identify new supplies that, that we can uh, augment our existing supplies with. And focusing on that one water approach and really looking at all of the resources, the water resources we have, and using them to their maximum and highest use is really critical. And that's what this strategy hinges on. Next slide, please. So taking advantages, uh, advantage of supplies that are here local. Groundwater, uh, gr local groundwater is something that we have used in San Francisco historically. And uh, since 2017, we've started pumping small amount of groundwater for drinking again as a local resilient supply source. It goes through extensive monitoring. It's a high quality source. And again, it's about matching the right water for the right end use and making that water available for drinking. Next slide, please. Recycled water, again, we have irrigation needs. In um, Golden Gate Park is a place where we've used groundwater for irrigation, but it, the appropriate water supply for that could be recycled water. So we are at, at, towards the end now of construction of the West Side Recycled Water Project near Oceanside Wastewater Treatment Plant. And that will produce water at a municipal scale for irrigation of large parks and golf courses. We already have Harding and Sharp Park golf courses irrigated with recycled water through partnerships with our neighboring utilities. Um, and we will be starting irrigation of Golden Gate Park soon with our West Side project. And it, it really allows us to save that potable groundwater supply for drinking water use. Next slide, please. We also have a robust on-site water reuse program that's been in place since 2012. We've, had, uh, we've been a pioneer. San Francisco has been a pioneer in this effort. And uh, over time, that the, the ordinance actually had just gotten more stringent. We've been able to uh, save more water with the on-site re, uh, water reuse program. Now all buildings over 100,000 square feet in San Francisco, new developments are required to have on-site programs. It's a real opportunity for significant water savings, can save up to 75% uh, of demand in a, in a commercial building, for example. Next slide, please. Then we have the alternative water supply plan, plan, which basically this planning program is the program that I manage, and we're looking out not just in San Francisco, but throughout our service area for new opportunities to work with neighboring water and wastewater utilities to look for new water supply sources by increasing storage, that's above and below ground storage, and also partnering with wastewater utilities to reuse more of our water also looking at desalination. So those are some of, of the ways that we're, we're looking to secure our water supplies for future droughts. Next slide, please. The third and final strategy in the water supply chapter is investing in implementing, implementing innovative programs to reduce use and develop new supplies. And these are some examples on this slide of things that um, are innovative, that we have piloted, uh, and identify new ways to save both water and energy. Next slide, please. So expanding the leak detection program, uh, we have a water loss reduction program that monitors and reduces water lost 
from main breaks in our infrastructure. We are also implementing preventative water loss actions to be able to identify and save water um, through potential leaks, and then implementing a main replacement program. In the last 10 years, we've replaced an average of nine miles of pipe per year. So that aging infrastructure that Julie was talking about, we're trying to address that to make sure that we have efficient pipes. Next slide, please. Um, opportunities to reuse water. We uh, had a partnership with a local brewery in San Francisco to reuse process water. So water that goes through processing can be reused for cleaning tanks and process equipment on site can save a significant amount of water, reducing water use to as low as two to three gallons. Um, San Francisco developed its own water quality and treatment guidelines for brewery process water reuse. This is, again, was groundbreaking. We didn't have uh, any path for permitting these kinds of uses prior. And Anchor Brewing Company was, was the, the company. We also awarded a grant through this on-site program to help them. Next slide, please. I mentioned heat recovery. These on-site systems can use a lot of energy, so installing heat recovery systems can help lower that energy footprint associated with these projects. There's opportunities to recover thermal energy from this water reuse process, and so we also have grant programs to incentivize that um, recapturing of the heat through the processing. Next slide, please. Atmospheric water generation, so they look like solar panels but really are taking moisture from the air to produce water. Doesn't produce large volumes of water but can be good for applications like community gardens, for example. So we piloted, uh, we had two uh, pilots of atmospheric water generation panels, one in Golden Gate Park and one at Hummingbird Farm. Next slide, please. And San Francisco purified water, again, reusing water that, uh, from the wastewater effluent that's generated from the two all-weather wastewater treatment plants we have in San Francisco, reusing that, bringing that to drinking water standards. We have new regulations uh, in the state of California now that allows that and charts a path forward. So that's something that is very cutting edge, and we're uh, engaging with other utilities around the state and around the world who are doing that to understand best practices and see what's uh, what's possible in San Francisco. And that's my last slide, so I'm happy, we're happy to answer any questions you might have. I'll just comment briefly. I was excited to see that you're doing a partnership with the brewery, but noticed, of course, it was with Anchor, uh, which is now since closed. Is there another partnership you're looking to do? With I, I think it's a very clever idea, but I'm wondering if you're looking to replicate that. Yes, we are um, always looking for other partners, and we're in the process of looking for other partners now. Yeah, sure. Manisha and Julie, great presentation and, and great to see all the innovative stuff that, that we've been doing here in San Francisco. Um, I, I understand that the Hetch Hetchy water doesn't go just to San Francisco, but it also goes to other places in the Bay Area, other, other counties, um, places with big lawns in many cases. So does San Francisco have, have any ability to um, help manage water use in those places? I mean, it's, it's the, we own the source of the water. Do we have any control over what the other counties are doing? 
We work very closely with um, the art. We have 26 cities uh, besides San Francisco that are served by the Hetch Hetchy Regional Water System. And we, uh, they're represented by an agency called BOSCA. We do work very close with, closely with BOSCA on the conservation messaging. Certainly we share all of our best practices with them, but also on demand, other demand management measures. A number of these water supply projects they are also partners in, and they also share the costs of. So we work very very closely with them. I don't know if you have anything to add. Yeah, I would just add that Bosca also runs conservation programs on behalf of the agencies that purchase water on a wholesale basis from us, and then those agencies themselves uh, have conservation programs, and we do coordinate and talk and share best practices. Got it. Thank you. And do you have any, any rough sense as to what percent of Hetch Hetchy gets consumed in San Francisco as opposed to other places? The other one, one third San Francisco, two thirds outside of San Francisco. Thank you. Uh, yes, Commissioner Tompkins. I, I do have a question with clarification on the incentives that are used. Do you have a sense of the data, how it's sliced and diced for utilization of any of the particular incentives, either by a particular cohort or a zip code or some uh, way to look at that data? Yeah, we, we do regularly review um, who participates in our water conservation incentive program, so we know how many we issue, we know how much has gone out dollar-wise, we know if it went to a single-family home, a apartment building, or a commercial property, we know, you know, geographically where it went, so we, we do look at that, and that factors into considerations when we are making, we're trying to make improvements to these incentives, how to get you know, if we see we need more participation or we want more participation from some group or some area that's not uh, participating as much as we had anticipated. So, yes, we do look at that. Yeah, it would be great to share that information and then to understand, particularly where it's underutilized, what those um, mitigations would be to increase utilization. Yeah, that's a real good point. We do, um, at a general level, we put out an annual report, and we're currently working on our annual report for um, the last fiscal year, so that includes um, a summary of the participation in those programs, and then the conservation plan that I mentioned that we'll be updating for 2025. We go deeper and talk about where we see the opportunities and the strategies to try to meet those markets. Thank you. Uh, Commissioner Hunter. Just a quick question. I think I get an email about salmon and algae bloom in a river pretty frequently because of our uh, partner cities. I'm curious how this will affect water conservation outside of San Francisco. So with, with algae blooms, I guess there's two two separate things. So with the salmon habitat, I mean, that is one of the, the drivers for changing regulations in the state um, and requirement to leave more environment, more flows for the environment. And so really for us, it's about balancing those needs, which are both, you know, part of our stewardship is uh, certainly pr protecting and providing for the environment that, that in, in, our, in our watersheds, but also making sure that there's enough water to serve our communities. And so really that's what these, these plans are about, especially augmenting new supplies, is how do we do that in a sustainable way? So how do we augment our supplies um, 
in the future when we may be required to leave more flows, but even with a drier climate, how do we adapt to those changes that we, we see coming in a sustainable way? The algal bloom issue is a, it is to some extent a nutrient-related issue, and it is not clear yet whether uh, reusing water can completely take care of that issue, but it is something that we're looking at um, with new reuse projects. What is the impact on the nutrient load that goes back into, gets discharged? In some cases, it's, uh, there are some co constituents that will be more concentrated, some that will be taken out during the treatment process. So really understanding what the relationship is between that and algal blooms is something that we're still looking at. Thank you. Seeing no other uh, discussion from commissioners, maybe we'll move to public comment. Thank uh, you. Oh, please go ahead. Are there any members of the public who are present in the room today who wish to comment on this item? And seeing none, we'll proceed to remote public comment. Members of the public who wish to make a public comment on this item should now press star three to be added to the speaker queue. And seeing none, public comment on this item is closed. All right, thank you again for your presentations. Next item, please, Kyle. All right, the next item is item nine, update on the energy efficiency program. The sponsor is Lowell Chu, an energy program manager. The speakers are Cara Batista Rao, senior energy specialist, and Ryan Ramos, senior energy specialist. This item is for discussion. Lowell, please take it away. Good evening, commissioners, and welcome, Commissioner Tompkins. My name is Lowell Chu. I'm the energy efficiency program manager. And tonight we are going to have a presentation consisting of a brief overview of the energy efficiency program, some of the tangible accomplishments uh, we had in uh, last year, and then we're gonna take a look ahead in 2024, our new programs and also the funding opportunities that we are going to be um, going over. Next slide, please, Kyle. So that was the agenda I just went through. Next slide, please. We'll jump right into the overview part, and we're going to begin by first introducing the team to you. So um, I have the honor and pleasure to work with seven incredibly hardworking, innovative, experienced energy professionals. I work closely with Kara and Ryan, um, who are behind me. And Kara um, is the manager for the Bay Area Regional Energy Network program on the commercial side. Ryan is the same on the residential side, so you hear most, um, you hear from them a little bit later. And under working with Kara would be Rena and Michael. Um, combined, they have over 20 years of experience with the Department of the Environment. Um, on over to Ryan's the residential side, we have Mira and Paul. Mira is a licensed architect, and Paul is a licensed contractor with a specialty in carpentry. Next slide, please. And speaking of Paul, there he is examining a condenser coil at a grocery store. In order to promote, in order to provide with a comprehensive understanding of our energy program, I want to dive into some of the key details of the program. Our dedicated team, like I said, have seven full-time employees, each bringing their own unique talents and expertise to our mission, not to mention in-language technical assistance. These individuals are the driving force behind the success of our programs. 
Now, when it comes to funding, it's important to note that our energy team is funded by work orders from other departments as well as grants. Uh, in terms of the work order, we're proud to have a solid partnership with key departments like the Department of Public Health, the San Francisco Public Utilities Commission, and the San Francisco International Airport. Their support, their support enables us to continue our vital work in the field of sustainable energy. And in terms of grants, like I mentioned, the Bay Area Regional Energy Network, BayRent, is an important partner. BayRent is a program administrator of ratepayer funds, just like PG&E, except they're comprised of local governments instead of being a utility. It takes public funds and uh, channel it into energy efficiency and electrification programs. Again, you hear some of that later on in the presentation. Um, for the current fiscal year, our program boasts a substantial budget of 6.8 million. This funding allocation is strategically divided with approximately 5 million earmarked for professional services and rebates. And you just heard in item number seven, Kara asking for more incentive dollars because we have more businesses to serve. These resources empower us to not only maintain our ongoing projects, but also explore new avenues for growth and innovation in the energy efficiency field. Next slide, please. So commissioners, we exist to implement local and state goals and policies. We exist to implement local state goals and policies. The statement serves as the compass guiding our efforts to create a sustainable and prosperous future for all San Franciscans. In the upcoming slides, you will see how our current and planned programs are not just aligned with this, but directly instrumental in realizing, effectuating local goals and policies. Next slide, please. And so just what are those goals and policies? Well, we have first and foremost the Climate Action Plan from 2021. Next, we have the Mayor's priorities on affordability and economic recovery. We are supporting the state's ambitions to phase, and local ambitions to phase out natural gas appliances and environmentally harmful refrigerants. We're also, because Bayron is a program administrator of ratepayer funds, we are also advancing, accelerating our state energy efficiency and environmental justice goals. Next slide, please. In addition to our core mission of implementing local and state goals and policies, I'm proud to say that the energy team is also dedicated to energizing equity. So what do we mean by that? Well, our programs go beyond just addressing energy needs. We prioritize accessibility and inclusivity. We're committed to providing access to efficiency and electrification resources to those who are often hard to reach and underserved in both residential and commercial sectors. In essence, we believe that sustainability should, is not a privilege, but a right for all, and our efforts reflect this commitment of ensuring that every San Franciscan can benefit from the advancement and opportunities within our work. Next slide, please. So now I will um, transition over to my colleague, Kara. Uh, again, Kara plays a pivotal role in our program team, providing strong leadership and vision she will walk us through the initiatives that exemplify our commitment to turning goals and policies into tangible, transformative action. Kara. Good evening again, Commissioners. I'm Kara Batista Rao, Senior Energy Specialist. 
And since 2018, the San Francisco Environment Department has had a work order with the San Francisco International Airport. The airport has a goal of achieving net zero emissions by 2030. And to directly support that policy, uh, Rena, Michael, and I completed a natural gas equipment inventory for the airport's terminals and non-terminal buildings. And this um, inventory helped to identify their natural gas appliances as a first step towards electrification. Um, for the small businesses or the tenants in the terminals, we also identified not only their gas equipment, but all electric alternatives for them. And this work is gonna continue into the next year. Next slide, please. Um, next, I want to inform you that our local government partnership with PG&E officially ended on June 30th this year. And with the closure of that partnership, we ended a decades-long relationship with PG&E. Uh, next slide. Um, so a little bit more about the partnership. Energy Access SF was a three-year partnership program that conducted outreach to our low-income and disadvantaged communities. We conducted both electronic and on-the-ground outreach in the Bayview-Hunters Point, Mission, Excelsior, um, Civic Center, and Tenderloin communities, and are proud to have served and referred over 550 residents to PG&E's rate assistance and energy efficiency programs. Um, for example, the Energy Savings Assistance Program for low-income residents, which helps to directly support affordability. We reached over 600 businesses, with many of them receiving no-cost energy assessments that helped them to reduce their operating costs. And as mentioned, we concluded this program on June 30th. Uh, Michael and Rena transferred over to our Bayren programs. Next slide. Um, so Michael, Rena, and I are now working on the Bayren business program. And this is a um, program that targets small businesses and delivers big benefits. It's an equity-focused program that serves the entire Bay Area region and directly supports local economic recovery and uptake in energy efficiency. Next slide. Bayren provides generous incentives. It uses a unique program design that only pays incentives for measured and verified energy savings. The Bayren Business Program reopened this summer on June 14th, and since then we've had 51 projects enrolled, which represents about 70 businesses. Um, these businesses are all hard to reach, and what that means is that they meet a category where they have less than 25 employees, they occupy a leased or rented space, and or they speak an, a language other than English. And nearly all of these businesses are in a disadvantaged community in the Bay Area. Um, and with that, I'll pass it over to my colleague, Ryan. Good evening, commissioners. I'm here to speak about the Bayron Residential Programs. Bayron has been running residential programming for energy efficiency uh, since 2013 with a focus on affordability and uh, equity. Bayron started primarily with energy efficiency, as I mentioned, and we are now prioritizing electrification in residential programming. The residential programming is divided into two categories, multifamily and single family. Next slide, please. The multifamily program is run uh, jointly between myself and Mira. Uh, we've been 
We've retrofitted more than 10,000 units in San Francisco since 2013 and provided over $4 million in incentives. We've served, we've served affordable housing operators such as Chinatown Community Development Center, the Tenderloin Neighborhood Development Corporation, Mission Housing, just to name a few. Over half of the units that we have served over the last 10 years are considered affordable. In 2020, we've pivoted to rolling out incentives for electrification, induction cooktops, um, heat pumps, and electric panel upgrades. And next, we're moving on to providing more incentives uh, for areas that are considered health and housing burdened communities, which is also uh, addresses a key item regarding the climate action plan. Next slide. The single family program uh, has been around also since 2013, retrofitting over 460 homes in San Francisco in that time frame. The program is in the midst of a redesign which will focus to serve more equitably households in the low and moderate income, uh, low and moderate income uh, communities with weatherization and electrification as a priority. Future developments of the single family program include linking it to the climate equity hub to enhance program participation for these priority communities. Next slide. Another program that the energy team implements is the fixed lead SF program. Uh, my colleague Paul is the main um, staff member working in the field on this program and it's a collaboration with the Department of Public Health to reduce lead hazards in residential buildings, nine units and fewer that contain children. The program moves beyond standard practice of interim controls and removes the highest risk leaded components of homes such as doors and windows and replaces them with non-leaded uh, or lead-free components. Next slide. Since the program rolled out this year and we've enrolled eight projects in a, uh, within a pilot program with three fully completed and two of those with families that needed relocation in order to accommodate the lead remediation activities. The other five projects are on track to finish this year. Um, and in 2024, we plan to have a full launch of the program in the priority neighborhoods that include the Mission, Excelsior, Bayview Hunters Point, and these neighborhoods were selected uh, with equity in mind. Next slide. Turning it over to Lowell for a discussion on the new programs. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks, commissioners. So, so far we've covered an overview of the program, what we're about, who we are. Then we took a look at some of the programs that we're currently implemented. Some of them go back to almost a decade. And now, for the third part of the presentation, I'm gonna speak about the new programs that we're gonna have in 2024. Next slide, please, Kyle. We are really excited about BRRRR, the Bay Ren Refrigerant Replacement Program. And this program, directly implements the Climate Action Plan Building Operation Action Number 4, Transition to Low Global Warming Potential Refrigerant. It also directly supports the state's plan to sunset environmentally harmful refrigerants by 2030. On June 30th of this year, the state regulator approved nearly $18 million budget over four years to fund BRRRR, to provide services and rebates for the entire Bay Area region through the Bay Ren. So this program will target food service sector, including restaurants, grocery and convenience stores, bars, 
food warehouses, food pantries, and meal centers, places where food is offered to the hungry, usually for free. Because it is an equity-focused program, Burr will have staff going out to detect and fix refrigerant leaks, recycle environmentally harmful refrigerants, and recharge the system with low global warming potential refrigerants at little to no charge. So this is a very, very important service that we're doing for uh, small businesses in the food service sector. In addition to, to managing the bad refrigerants, Burr will also provide energy efficiency retrofits and rebates to improve energy use, thereby improving these small businesses' affordability on utilities. Next slide, please. The second program we plan to roll on 2024 is a partnership with Clean Power SF. This partnership aims to complement Burr. Whereas Burr gets rid of environmentally harmful refrigerants and fixed leaks, Clean Power SF aims to improve energy efficiency of restaurants, grocery stores, and bars. By improving energy efficiency, again, we're lowering their utility expenses, thereby directly supporting economic recovery and affordability. The teams are aiming to launch this program at the first quarter of next year. Next slide, please, Kyle. So for the final portion of the presentation, we want to share with you some of the funding opportunities we're currently going after. Next slide, please. These opportunities, as we know, the energy team is pursuing opportunities at both federal and state levels. These opportunities not only enhance our impact, but also reinforce our commitment to driving a positive change. First, we're taking the lead in the administration and implementation of a energy efficiency block grant from the U.S. Department of Energy. The block grant is known as Energy Efficiency and Conservation Block Grant, earmarked to drive forward our efforts in energy efficiency and equity. It's an exciting development that underscores our dedication to making our energy landscape more sustainable and equitable. We've also thrown our hat in for the U.S. Department of Energy's Building Upgrades Challenge. This challenge seeks innovative ideas from across the nation to deploy energy efficiency and electrification technologies, especially focusing on heat pump water heaters. Our submission is ambitious and community-centric. In this challenge, we aim to install 200 low-voltage hot water heat pumps in 200 days right within our city's disadvantaged communities. To ensure success of this initiative in our application, we partner with Poder, the Rising Sun for Opportunities, and others who will play a crucial role in outreach and participant recruitment. Finally, we're working with various state agencies and the San Francisco Public Utilities Commission to ensure funding earmarked for the equitable solar deployment system from the Inflation Reduction Act to our low-income and disadvantaged communities. At the state level, we're actively seeking partners for a California Energy Efficiency, I'm sorry, California Energy Commission grant that supports market transformation in refrigeration technologies in large food warehouses. We think this will nicely complement Burr. These opportunities exemplify our team's unwavering commitment to seek out, seize, and successfully implement initiatives that will positively impact our community and moving our goals and objectives. Next slide, please. So um, that concludes our presentation, and we are happy to take any questions, and thank you for your time. No questions, but I love to uh, 
congratulate you on your work that you're doing, especially on the, the new opportunities that are coming your way. Um, it would be great to, to see the grants that you are proposing to be awarded and, and uh, get a little bit more insight on those. Absolutely. Thank you, Commissioner Townsend. Thank you. Uh, so, Lowell, one question. Um, you mentioned the, the end of the PG&E program kind of followed immediately by the good news about Bayren. So how, how big is PG&E relative to the overall kind of work that you're all doing in terms of dollars? And it, did the Bayren program expand at about the same time that PG&E expired? Uh, I couldn't yeah, yeah. get a sense of that. Thank you, Commissioner Sullivan. So in terms of magnitude, the PG&E <coughs> local government partnership was about a million dollars in budget a year. And the um, Bayren business program where the staff from the local government partnership transferred into um, for just the implementation piece is about the same, maybe a little bit more, but it's about equivalent. And the, in terms of timing, you know, the Bayran business program has been around since 2018, but it suffered <coughs> several setbacks, including the pandemic, you know, and as a result, we really got started this year. We, we had a pilot phase last year towards the end, but we really were more in the regional rollout mode in <coughs> June. So the pg contract ended on June 30th, and then the Bayran business contract um, rollout, regional rollout started in mid-June. So the timing uh, was, very, um, was very good. Got it. Thank you. Seeing no other discussion from commissioners, go to public comment then. Thank you, Lowell. Are there any members of the public who are present in the room today who wish to comment on this item? And seeing none, we'll proceed to remote public comment. Members of the public who wish to make a public comment on this item should now press star three to be added to the speaker queue. And seeing none, public comment on this item is closed. Thanks again. Thank you. Next item, please. All right, the next item is item 10, update on construction and demolition ordinance enforcement. The speaker is James Slattery, construction and demolition zero waste senior coordinator. This item is for discussion. Evening, James. Good evening, commissioners. Glad to be back. Um, I'm James Slattery. I am the senior coordinator of the Construction and Demolition Zero Waste Program uh, at the uh, team, sorry, hosted by the Zero Waste Program. Uh, I've been with the department for about 11 years now. The last seven have been focused exclusively on the policies and programs I'm going to share this evening. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, just a quick reminder, the requirements for debris recovery are nested in Chapter 14 of the Environment Code. Um, they've been in effect since 2006. Um, the um, easiest way to convey them is there's a, a prohibition, uh, a ban on direct hauling any discards from a construction project directly to landfill for the purpose of disposal. Um, I was here about a year ago, almost exactly, sharing a progress update on some of the uh, new requirements that were adopted unanimously by the Board of Supervisors in 2021. And I'll pick up where we left off with uh, a progress update on how implementation has been going since then. Next slide, please. So going beyond the, just the ban on landfilling C&D discards, uh, uh, the C&D ordinance has some specific requirements for the transportation 
and processing of mixed debris. Um, they're kind of hyper-focused there because commingling discards is the preferred deb debris management strategy of most construction project teams. Uh, preference is to throw them all in one debris box, one truck, send them off for a, to a facility and let somebody else sort through it to try to resource, uh, recover whatever resources can be recovered. Um, Beyond Chapter 14, though, the CND Debris Recovery Ordinance, our team is also tasked with monitoring compliance with the state's green building uh, debris recovery requirements. So that's Cal Green's debris recovery requirements, as well as Chapter 7 of the Environment Code. That's the San Francisco Municipal Green Building Code, speaking to our municipal projects. So the, the size and scope of the regulated ecosystem here is enormous. Um, Pre-pandemic, it was not uncommon for the Department of Building Inspection to issue over 50,000 building permits. Uh, about 25 to 30,000 of them projected to generate significant quantities of discards. And there's hundreds of hauling companies involved here, deploying thousands of debris boxes and vehicles. This is um, not a franchise model. It's an open competitive hauling system. And then there's dozens of facilities that are scattered throughout the region that we are um, tasked with monitoring. Um, so in 2021, um, there were some updates to our ordinance that touched on every component of the ecosystem, uh, some for the facility network, some small changes for projects, but the most significant change was impacting the transporter network. Um, and the most notable one was the now mandate, the requirement that permits would be required for the right to collect and transport mixed construction and demolition debris. Next slide, please. This is uh, the 2023 permit decal that you'll find affixed to a debris box or vehicle that's actively collecting or transporting mixed debris. That's regardless if the uh, box or truck is on public or private property. And so last year, uh, the work plan called for us to recruit, hire, and train new staff as the program responsibilities expanded. We basically were building a program from the ground up. We had to develop and deploy an outreach campaign that would notify the impacted stakeholders of these new requirements, also providing them with technical assistance for how they can comply. And then midway through the year, we started to shift focus on building the enforcement protocols, which were another major component of the ordinance update. Next slide, please. And what you see here is the outreach flyer that was created and used to inform those stakeholders that beginning January 1st, 2022, a permit is required to collect and transport mixed debris. The flyer was translated and designed uh, into English, Spanish, Chinese. It's circulated not only by our staff, but also colleagues at SF Public Works who monitor the public right of way where a lot of the trucks and debris boxes are staged during construction and demolition. Uh, and they're also circulated by colleagues at the Department of Building Inspection at the time of permit issuance, of building permit issuance. Um, just a quick reminder, the fees were tiered and um, they were, uh, they increase based on the hauling capacity of each vehicle. So the, the larger the payload, the higher the permit fee. Next slide, please. Um, what I'm showing here on this slide on these two um, images, the, the chart to the right is, um, showing you the permit revenue uh, generated by tier over the two permit cycles that have been employed thus far. We're in, we're in the third quarter of the um, permit cycle uh, of, of the second year. So in calendar year 2022, and we measured in calendar year because the permit cycle is, is affixed to a calendar year rather than fiscal. Calendar year 2022, we generated $748,000 in revenue from these permit fees. In 23, so far we've um, collected 848,000. And what you see on the um, chart to the left is the breakout by each tier. 
permits that were sold there and whether they're increasing or de decreasing year over year. There may or may not be a story there I can press into later during the um, question and answer period. You're all well aware of the challenges our department faces with regards to securing funds and resources for the missions that we are tasked with. Uh, what's critical about this revenue stream is that it has a strong legal limitation on how those funds can be spent. The money can only be spent for implementing or enforcing Chapter 14 of the Environment Code. Next slide, please. And what you see here is the initial result of the new funding source. Um, this is the team that was recruited, hired, and trained in the last year. And to the on the far right hand, you see Kat Hanrahan. Kat's uh, been with us for a year and a half. Kat is our primary field agent visiting construct, active construction projects, demolition projects, monitoring compliance with all these requirements. Uh, to Kat's right is Chris Otoshi. Chris uh, is one of our Climate Corps fellows. Um, we've hosted five fellows on this team, um, five consecutive years. Uh, to Chris's right is Nicole Inaba, also a former fellow who was hired on as our 9922 um, associate doing compliance monitoring from the desktop. Next to the, to the right of Nicole is Eric Passwalk. He's taken over the day-to-day -day, uh, coordination responsibilities for this team. He's our 5640. Uh, he and Nicole are about to hit their one-year anniversary with us. Chris Lester is kind of in the background there. Um, you've heard from him recently. He splits his time between two of our programs, the Toxics Reduction uh, Healthy Ecosystems Team and the Zero Waste Team. And uh, he's been with us on the Zero Waste Construction and Demolition Team since 2020. And that's myself off to the far right there. Um, so with the key players hired and trained, uh, next slide, Kyle, we were off to uh, developing the enforcement protocols and regulations for Chapter 14. What you see uh, on the left-hand side of your screen is the inspection form that was developed. This is what Kat and Eric are using when they perform job site inspections. The form is used to request documentation, uh, receipts to demonstrate that debris was delivered to the properly authorized facility. It's also used to issue warnings as well as curable notices of violation. Uh, these regulations that um, were effective as of February 15th were developed in collaboration with a number of agencies. They're listed there. Uh, not just the regulations, but the protocols, the citation issuance process, the appeals process, and the fine citation collection process, all in collaboration with sister agencies. The regulations, we performed uh, multiple racial equity scans on them, and a public hearing was held before the effective date. Next slide, please. And as noted earlier, uh, a critical strategy, um, not just on our team, but at the department at large, is to embrace uh, tactics that are rooted in outreach and stakeholder engagement. Um, really, it's more about carrots than sticks. And so e that's, that's also centered in the way we approach enforcement. Um, we provide in-language support through the language line. We translate all relevant forms, including the outreach materials, as well as the um, notice of violation packets. And there's a, a, a specific enforcement page also translated into multiple languages. Next slide, please. Uh, so here's the results. They, they speak for themselves, taking on this uh, approach where we center stakeholder engagement technical assistance and outreach. Um, since going effective, so from March to June, we've issued uh, 68 of these inspection reports. 10 of them for, were requests for documentation, 30 were official warnings, and 28 were curable notices of violation with a cure rate of 93%. So we've only issued 
um, a small fraction of citations. Um, and that, that's by design. Again, um, the, the enforcement protocols are meant to be a deterrence. We're not here to paper the town with tickets and citations. Next slide, please. I'm gonna pivot away just for a moment from chapter 14 and those updates. I wanna to speak to um, some of the work our team performs under our work order with the Department of Building Inspection. And if you noted on the slide with the staff, I, I had a breakout there that showed um, how our, our team was funded. Um, from 2006 until 2021, we were 100% work order funded by DBI. That's now 28% uh, of our team's funding. Uh, more than 65% is the C&D fees, the permit fees I've spoken to, and 7% is coming from the zero waste impound. Uh, but for the 28% from DBI, what we're really tasked with is providing a service to our sister agency that involves implementing and monitoring compliance with Cal Green and the state's green building code, specifically their debris recovery requirements. The, the heart of those requirements are that projects impacted by Cal Green must submit a debris recovery plan in order for DBI to issue the building permit. And in order for a final occupancy inspection to proceed, they have to submit the documentation, the receipts showing that the plan was followed, the material went to the correct facilities. So our team's tasked with receiving these plans, providing technical assistance to the impacted project teams, uh, and then reviewing and approving and, and notifying DBI to proceed. Um, what why I'm calling this out this year is that um, we were tasked with, well, really DBI was charged with expanding this program to a subset of impacted projects that land in the residential sector. Um, so while the construction industry is kind of in an economic slump at the moment, our work plan was continuing to expand because this would be the first time that DBI would be fully compliant with the Cal Green requirements. And next slide, please. Um, this is again, some examples of the translated materials. Beyond just translating into uh, the, the languages of Sp Spanish and Chinese, we also have a contact list of over 1,300 industry entities that we leverage when we're doing outreach. Next slide. So for us to efficiently implement that work order, we rely on technology. Uh, we use an online platform called Green Halo Systems, which is fairly ubiquitous in the Bay Area right now. Um, so every municipality working to comply with Cal Green has to figure out how they're gonna capture these debris recovery plans. Most municipalities of our size are using this platform. So this is critical infrastructure for the state at the moment. Uh, next slide, please. And here's the breakout of the performance coming through that platform. And so you could see year over year since 2020 up till now, how our work plan's expanding, even though DBI's permit issuance is declining. And that's again, because they're, they're finally compliant with all impacted project tiers. Um, what's noteworthy is we did not expand to the residential tier until March 15th, uh, 2023. So we're still figuring out how to absorb the workflow. We're tweaking the online platform, customizing it for automation. Uh, but you can see off to the far right, the, the bar graph there, 2023, uh, we've had 600 final plan reviews and the pie chart to the left is showing you the debris recovery or diversion outcomes from those plans. And next slide, please. 
And then the final stakeholder group that's impacted by these, uh, this patchwork of regulatory requirements is the facility network that we monitor uh, and inspect. So we have 14 registered facilities. These are facilities permitted, authorized by SFE to receive and process mixed debris generated here in San Francisco. We perform annual inspections, at least one of each facility. We've also um, issued a regulation in 2018 requiring third-party verification of each facility's performance. Next slide. This is the result of that requirement. So you get to see each the, the impacted project teams now know which facility is able to sort through uh, a ton of mixed debris and what the typical outcome would be. We can recover 60% of one ton or 39%. This um, model has been recognized as basically the gold standard in um, facility performance monitoring. That's done. Uh, that recognition comes from the U.S. Green Building Council and um, the LEED credit system. It's also serving as a, a north star, a point of reference for our, our neighboring jurisdictions who don't have this type of performance monitoring. So they look to our facility network. They're used by other counties, and they're able to tell their project teams this is how that facility performs. And it's currently serving as a policy framework for a, a statewide policy mandate. Um, hopefully that gets adopted. And uh, next and final slide before going to Q&A, what what's coming ahead in the year ahead, um, we need to activate some remaining elements of the new requirements under Chapter 14. We need to issue uh, another set of, regula of regulations that will be targeted at the facility network. We will be migrating all of our patch, our quilt work of data management into Salesforce. Uh, we have to balance the revenue projections and expenditure process. In year one, we had a surplus. Year two, we had a deficit. So it's about dialing that in. Um, and then finally, um, this is, speaks to the 7% of our program funding, our team funding coming from zero waste impound. We're also tasked with supporting the research and development of new programs, new policies under the Climate Action Plan, um, uh, RPC, Responsible Production and Consumption section. I would direct your attention to page 106. Uh, and then, yeah, finally on that image there, um, what's notable is the two permit decals on that vehicle. So two consecutive years with that one operator um, complying with the new requirements. Uh, next and final slide. Thank you for your time. I'm, I'm happy to take any questions you might have. From a command presentation, as always, James, and uh, I, I will commend you for diversifying funding and expanding staffing over the years. I think it's really impressive how this program has been built Thank out. Thank you. Um, but other questions, comments from commissioners? Yeah, Commissioner Sullivan. Uh, yeah, great presentation. 11 years of experience really helps, I guess. Um, so my question is about the there's incredible success at, at you know, the, the 2021 legislation must have had a big impact on, on C&D and, and looking at the charts, total plans approved up and to the right. So all that must be generating a lot of stuff that, that's, that can be recycled. So. That works if there's demand on the other side. So how how has that worked in terms of making sure that that construction businesses know that there's recycled materials available to, to, to purchase or use somehow? How's how's the the demand side worked with this supply side? It's a great question. Uh, the, um, the well, there is a, a, a pretty large, significant disconnect in the generation of discarded. C&D materials and products and those that can be recovered. The vast majority cannot. And so what we end up sending to landfill, 25% of what San Francisco sends to landfill is the result of the building industry. And um, I would 
signal that the primary products that can be recovered are your metals, concrete or inert materials, sand and gravel and asphalt are, are easily recycled, clean wood. Um, it's a stretch to call it recycling. It would be downcycling. We typically direct clean lumber into um, cogeneration plants, biomass plants that incinerate it, use the heat to turn turbines and generate kilowatt hours of energy, or it gets chipped and dyed and uh, grind up into mulch. So it's a bit of a downcycle on clean wood. Uh, clean drywall also makes its way into the agricultural amendment market, so a compost market. Uh, after that, it really does crater in, in what's recoverable. That's really why it's important for us to be working with the upstream stakeholders, which um, we started to do very closely in 2018. Our team on the Zero Waste Program started to work closely with the green building team. We formed an ad hoc working group that we've named the Building Materials Management Team. Uh, a lot of that work from that group has found its way into Climate Action Plan RPC1, page 106. Um, where you see um, pathways to things like a deconstruction ordinance, um, adaptive reuse of structures, so don't demolish it. Use the structure as it is. You know, you can reskin it. Uh, you can change elements internally, but um, demolishing it um, actually uh, blows a, a carbon budget out of the water, if you will, an embodied carbon budget. And so um, to answer your question about the supply and demand, it's tricky, and those markets really do teeter. Um, uh, you know, the metal market tends to stabilize everything. There's the economics involved there that you usually get paid for the metals. But right now, we're seeing extreme volatility in the concrete market because the demand, most municipalities tell construction projects, you've got to recycle certain amounts. Concrete has local, longstanding, thriving markets the demand is overwhelming. Many of those facilities have maxed out the, the, the permit allowances of what they can stage. So they give away the crushed concrete basically for free. Um, and when they can't give it away fast enough, they, they start to tell projects, you, you can't bring anything else here. And so every truck in the region that's trying to recycle concrete turns into a new direction to the next facility, amplifies the pressure on that one. And we're starting to see a cascade effect on um, where concrete can be recycled. So some of the things we're trying to do with our ordinance is incentivize source separation rather than the commingling of materials. Because when you commingle all of these products that were never meant to be in contact with one another, it degrades the constituent materials to a point where the recycling markets are not willing to receive them. The wood market, the drywall market, won't touch it. And so the permits are for mixed debris hauling. And the incentive that's baked in there is that if your project team source separates, you do not have to hire a permitted hauler. So in theory, we see a ripple effect on the, the cost impacts. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Questions, comments? Okay. Well, thanks again. And with that, we'll go to public comment. Are there any members of the public or president in the room today who wish to comment on this item? And seeing none, we'll proceed to remote public comment. Members of the public participating remotely who wish to make a public comment on this item should now press star three to be added to the queue. <clears throat> and seeing none, public comment on this item is closed. Okay, thank, thank you. you again. Thank you. Next item, please. 
All right, the next item is item 11, review and vote on whether to approve resolution file 2023-12-COE, resolution adopting the 2023 reduced risk pesticide list for city properties. The speakers are Dr. Shoba Iyer, Integrated Pest Management Program Manager, Gabriel Hernandez, Municipal Toxics Reduction Assistant Coordinator. The explanatory documents are the staff memo, draft 2023 reduced risk pesticide list, and resolution file 2023-12-COE. This item is for discussion and possible action. Under the Environment Code, the department maintains the reduced risk pesticide list, identifying those pesticides that may be used on city property subject to restrictions. Dr. Iyer. Thank you. Hi everyone and good evening commissioners. Great, we can move on to the next slide. So uh, let me first introduce our integrated pest management or IPM team to you. My name is Shoba Iyer, and I'm the IPM program manager here at SFE. I began working in this role in the spring of 2022, and I'm very pleased tonight to introduce my teammate right behind me, Gabriel Hernandez. Gabriel joined my team four months ago and was previously working as an associate on our residential toxics reduction team. Um, it's been wonderful working with Gabriel these last few months. He's a wonderful addition to our IPM team. And just so you're aware of some of the staffing changes that have happened on my team, uh, prior to bringing Gabriel on board, we had a variety of changes both on our IPM team as well as in our larger toxics reduction team. For the first half of this year, I was the only one on our IPM team. And so at that time, I was really leaning on my amazing SFE colleagues, uh, Hui Lei and Jesus Lozano to help me keep our core IPM activities going. And I will have one more program analyst joining my team next month. Her name's Valerie Vines, and I'm really looking forward to having a full team uh, for the first time since I joined the department. Next slide, please. So today's action for the commission is to review and vote on whether to approve the 2023 reduced risk pesticide list for city properties. Note that these are pesticides for use at San Francisco municipal properties, and the integrated pest management ordinance has no authority over private and commercial uses of legally registered pesticides. And I do want to mention up front that the IPM program is really a whole lot more than a pesticide monitoring or pesticide reduction program. It's really more of a harm reduction program that manages different risks based on the pest problems we're dealing with in San Francisco, as well as pesticide hazards and the amounts of pesticides used. So the program involves landscape and structure management, lots of education and training opportunities, alternatives analyses, and it invokes the precautionary principle. So with that, what we'll be covering in today's presentation um, is here. I'll first briefly describe some of the IPM activities that have occurred over the last year in the program. Then you'll hear from Gabriel um, with some information on the overall pesticide use trends in San Francisco in the 2022 calendar year. Then I'll tell you some of the ideas that I have for the program over the next year, and we'll finish off with some recommendations on the reduced risk pesticide list. Next slide, please. Great. So I'll first share our key program accomplishments from 2022. City departments reduced tier one herbicide use by 98.7% from 2010 to 2022. 
Tier one pesticides are the highest hazard and usually the highest priority for identifying a replacement with a safer alternative. Uh, pest inspections, interviews, and data analysis on 1,200 units of affordable housing were completed. And this was work that was part of a larger project funded by a grant from the California Department of Pesticide Regulation. It was a big collaborative effort with the Mayor's Office of Housing uh, and Community Development, as well as SFE's toxics reduction and environmental justice teams and various property developers and managers. And I really wanna give major props to my predecessor, Chris Geiger, and to Shraddha Mehta for their hard work on leading this project. We recently got the good news that we've secured additional grant funding from the California Department of Pesticide Regulation to continue this work. And Ray Mannion for, uh, with SFE's Environmental Justice Program is gonna be spearheading the continued work. Next slide. I'm continuing our key accomplishments from last year here. So we've continued to convene our monthly public IPM meetings in spite of our challenge and being short-staffed. These meetings are really one of our core program activities. We've been holding these meetings virtually, and some of the topics we've discussed include invasive plant management, habitat restoration and enhancement, the fundamentals of aquatic ecology, and vector control. These meetings, I find, they provide really good forums for IPM professionals to trade tips and guidance on how to manage pest problems while limiting or avoiding the use of harmful pesticides. Next slide. We've also continued to convene annual IPM trainings for city departments, and a variety of topics are covered in these trainings. Uh, in the trainings I attended over this last year, I heard sessions on managing different kinds of IVs, on tick prevention, and on invasive weed control. Next slide. We've also taken some opportunities to connect with our city colleagues in the field and learn in person about various pest management issues. Last year, I had an opportunity to do a city IPM field trip with our colleagues at PestTech, who are our citywide pest contractor. And we saw some spaces with rodent burrows that needed to be managed. We also visited one of the Muni bus depots, where our city buses are serviced and maintained. Um, it's a little hard to see in that photo that's second to the left, but there's pigeon proofing all along the beams on top of the buses there. Uh, more recently, Gabriel and I visited our Reckon Parks colleagues at Harding Park, the golf course, and we learned about different pest issues there, as well as other golf course-specific considerations like grass types. And I'm really looking forward to continuing these kinds of field trips and learning about what are the pest problems that we're seeing on city properties and the IPM work going on. So at this point, I'm going to pass it over to Gabriel for the next couple slides. Thank you, Shoba, and good evening. So hello, um, on this slide here depicted is a graph that's displaying the tier one pesticide use in the city. So Shoba mentioned tier one is the most hazardous pesticides listed on the reduced risk pesticide list, and we advise departments to use them sparingly. Um, so here displayed on the x-axis is the year, and on the y-axis is the pounds of active ingredient, which essentially corresponds to pesticide usage, so that's what I'll be referring to it as. Um, so here we're displaying 2010 and then the four most current years of complete data that we have. So when comparing 2022 to 2010, we observed a 99.4% reduction in pesticide usage. 
And when we're looking at um, 2021 and 2022, we see a 36 pound decrease in usage in 2022. Um, and a large portion of this decrease in usage of these tier one products comes from the Department of um, Recreation and Parks re reducing their use of these tier one products. Um, next slide, please, Kyle. And then here on this slide displayed is the um, pe all pesticide usage in San Francisco. So the different lines here are representing our different tiers. So tier one being the most hazardous and then tier three being the least hazardous. Um, and then as you can see in the year for 2022, tier one is um, at the bottom of this graph, the least used of the three um, types. And I also want to highlight that from 2021 to 2022, the cumulative pounds of pesticides used or active ingredient has decreased. So we're using less pesticides in 2022 compared to 2021. And then and the last thing that I'll highlight on this slide is the tier three usage, so the green dotted line. Um, so you can see that it is quite a bit above the others. And that is because often with a tier three product, which is a safer product, um, you need more of this essentially to achieve the desired pest management goal opposed to using something that's a little more potent and toxic. So that's why we see more of this use of a safer products. Um, and then when we looked into the tier three usage, a large portion of that is coming from fungicide applications at the golf course. And then two products in particular are being used and one is a mineral oil based product and the other is a phosphate salt based product. And with that, I will hand it back over to Shoba. Thank you. Thank you, Gabriel. Next slide, please. So here I'm showing you some activities I have in mind for the coming year. We'll continue building and maintaining our relationships with city IPM staff and expanding our knowledge on San Francisco's pest problems by doing field visits and seeing the spaces where pests are uh, being managed. Um, as I mentioned, our team's relatively new, so by stepping away from our office, stepping away from the computer, and taking a look at what's going on in the field, we'll get a better understanding of pest problems, and then I think we'll be better positioned to identify solution strategies that continue to limit or avoid the use of harmful pesticides. Um, as I mentioned, we've been continuing to hold our monthly IPM meetings virtually on Microsoft Teams. I'd really like to transition this meeting series to a hybrid format so that attendees can have the option of joining in person. We do need to make some updates to the pesticide use reporting system database that we manage, and this is the database used to track all pesticides used on city properties. Um, one of the other things I'd like to do is work on updating the content on our IPM website. And we're going to continue to conduct toxicological reviews of the pesticides used on San Francisco municipal properties. Um, there's something else I just want to touch on that I don't have in the slide, and that's this nexus between pest problems we are seeing in San Francisco that may be linked with indicators of climate change. Um, it's something that's been on my mind. Um, we know that with warm, wet weather that allows insects to thrive. Um, something I recently learned is that the growth of poison ivy increases with increasing carbon dioxide levels and the potency increases as well. Um, we know we have SFPUC land out at the Alameda and Peninsula watersheds and at Hetch Hetchy that are threatened by wildfire risk. So this is something on my radar and something I'm interested in learning some more about, this nexus between indicators of climate change and pest problems that we're observing. Next slide. 
All right, so now let's talk about the reduced risk pesticide list or RRPL. And the proposed changes I'll summarize here come after we've gone through our annual process that our IPM program conducts to make sure that we continue to minimize use of the most limited pesticides on city properties and seek safer alternatives. So earlier this summer in June and July, we convened work group meetings with city IPM professionals to review and update the reduced risk pesticide list. And last month in August, we held a public hearing where we heard city departments explain their IPM work, including use of tier one or the most hazardous pesticides and any pesticide product exemptions they were granted. So that's the process we've already gone through that now brings me to the summary of the proposed reduced risk pesticide list changes. And for anyone who might wanna see all the specific details of the proposed changes, I'll ask you to take a look at the webpage for today's commission meeting and check out the draft RRPL meeting document posted for agenda item number 11. So this year we are proposing the addition of four tier two or more hazardous products one is a plant growth regulator for vegetation management. One is a flybait for use in some specific hospital locations where sanitation is not enforceable. One is a rodent bait that can be used in rotation with other rodenticides on the RRPL to prevent resistance. And one is an adjuvant. And this adjuvant product is something that adjusts the water pH such that less pesticide is needed to achieve the intended effect. We're also proposing the addition of four tier three or least hazardous products. One is an organic insecticide formulation intended to replace a different tier three insecticide that is no longer used. One is an insecticide that's a mineral oil. One is an insecticide used to manage grubs on golf courses. And one is a pigeon repellent. There's one tier one or most hazardous herbicide marked for removal from the RRPL and that's Garlon 4 Ultra. Uh, city IPM staff have been reporting success in substituting a safer alternative herbicide called Vastlan, which is a tier two. And I'll note that both Garlon 4 Ultra and Vastlan have the same active ingredient, but it's the other product ingredients that make Vastlan a, a comparably safer alternative to Garlon 4 Ultra. And there are two tier two products and two tier three products that we have marked for removal. And these products are no longer used by city department staff or the departments no longer have them in stock. Next slide, please. We also clarified and updated the language for 15 products on the reduced risk pesticide list. And so examples of these edits are things like updating or correcting the product name or the US EPA registration numbers um, and clarifying the use instructions and limitations. Next slide. Thanks for your attention. We've got our IPM email address here on this slide for anyone who wishes to reach out to us and I'll welcome any questions or comments. Any questions, comments? Uh, yes, one, one question. Um, great presentation. Um, the, the metric that really jumped off the slide to me was the tier one um, pound change from 2021 to 22, because over the last few years, the tier one herbicide number has stayed pretty constant. Um, and but, and we, we hear from advocates on this topic regularly. Um, and this seems like this is, there, mu there must be a good news story here as to why the tier one usage dropped over 75% from one year to the next. I wonder if you could just give us a little bit of, 
I think Gabriel said it, it was it was Rec Park primarily, but is there a, a bit more story there? Yeah, so we were pleased to see that, you know, as well. And um, maybe I'll, I'll mention what we what we found, what Gabriel and I found, or there were two main products that seemed to explain a lot of that decrease. Um, and it was the use by Rec and Parks that primarily explained that decrease. One was um, not using Garlon 4 Ultra, which had, we had talked about last year as marking it for removal from the list. So I think that explains part of it. The other um, product was an insecticide. Um, and I don't know if, Matt, you want to offer any comments on if there were differences in insect issues you were seeing that might have warranted different use in Nibor D? Yeah, you can come up. I'll ask my Reckon Parks colleague, Matt Pruitt, to pipe up on that. Pruitt. I'm the IPM coordinator for Reckon Park. Yeah, so Nibor D is um, it, it's, um, a product that's used intermittently um, for structural pests. Um, so like if you have a project, so we, <clears throat> we had a few projects where one of them was redoing the Japanese pagoda at the uh, Japanese tea garden, and that um, required some uh, wood, had some wood destroying insects like powder post beetle, and so we had to treat the new new wood that was going in there. So that was insecticide. So it's not all we're not always using these uh, uh, insecticides year to year. It's gonna it's gonna depend on projects or need as well. So see. Yeah. we may not see another seventy five percent decrease next year. Is what you're saying? <laughs> we'll see what the data say. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Um, just two fast questions. Generally, I think we received some public comments earlier in this meeting, and then you mentioned updating the website. Are there any plans to increase notice or availability of notice for when we're using Tier 1 or any herbicides? Yeah, so the comment that was received relating to the postings. Um, it's a good question. Um, right now, what the ordinance states is that uh, for tier one and tier two pesticide applications, a, a warning sign needs to be posted in the area three days before and I think up to four days after. I would like to learn some more information about kind of where uh, those signs are being posted in the city and what we might uh, be able to accomplish on that. So we'll, I wanna talk to some of our city partners and think about, um, think about that a little bit more. Makes total sense. Yeah. Generally, um, to echo the commissioner's point, I think the pest management program, Chris did a fabulous job and now transitioning over to you. It's been great to watch this project really blossom into something. I think it doesn't get as much visibility or value. I don't think pest management is a sexy topic, but you're doing excellent work and I appreciate it deeply. Thank you so much. Comments, questions? Seeing none, uh, we'll go to public comment. Or excuse me, uh, we actually need to entertain a motion first. This is an action item. Uh, so we have a resolution before us today uh, accepting the reduced risk uh, pesticide list. Do I hear a motion? I'll move approval. All right, we have a motion for approval from Commissioner Sullivan. A second? Second. A second from Commissioner Wan. And with that, we'll go to public comment then. Are there any members of the public who are present in the room today who wish to comment on this item? Seeing none, we'll proceed to remote public comment.
Members of the public who wish to make a public comment on this item should now press star three to be added to the speaker queue. And we do have a couple callers in the queue, just a moment. Hello, caller, you're unmuted. Your three minutes begin now. Hello, caller, we're getting some feedback in the meeting room. If you're calling in and participating in the meeting via multiple devices, please be sure to mute the second device. Hello, caller, you're unmuted. Your three minutes begin now. Okay. Caller, we're still getting some feedback. If you are also playing the audio of the meeting on a separate device, please be sure to mute that device. Okay, caller, you've been unmuted once again. Um, your three minutes begin now. The device. Caller, I'm afraid we're still getting some feedback on our end. We're going to move to the next caller in our queue. Caller, you're unmuted. Your three minutes begin now. Thank you for taking my call. Thank you um, for hosting this meeting. Can you hear me? I only have one phone. Yes, we can hear you. Uh, Thank you. My name is Dr. Yumeroy, and um, I want to first say that I appreciate that this committee is going in a more intentional and conscious direction. But I do want to say that um, there's very little pesticide and herbicide usage that is safe. In fact, it's infinitesimally small. And to poison our land, our water, our soil, and just to say that you're using different combinations or less poisonous substances is not convincing to us. The U.S. has already killed 30% of all its bird population. And many of our bee populations that pollinate 80% of our flowers and fruits and vegetables have been decimated. So we don't approve of the city's applications of synthetic pesticides anymore. Time is running out for us, for our world, and we want you to stop poisoning us and making excuses about how you're reducing pesticide use and herbicide use when there are alternatives that are safe. We don't appreciate the double speak of the lies. And there are lies. There's a vendetta going on in the city to pull down all the so-called non-native plants. This is a form of fundamentalism when native plants are no longer even well adapted to our local environment and cannot survive climate change. When these, when these people talk about invasive species, they need to look in the mirror. It is humanity that's threatening all life on Earth, and we need to quicken our pace and show restraint towards other kingdoms. It's no longer safe for our children to walk barefoot in the park. 
it's no longer safe for us to drink water. I personally was poisoned with water contamination in 1991, two years before I moved to San Francisco, and my health has never recovered. I really don't appreciate the vainglorious comments of this commission when time is running out and when we need to be doing much, much more to prepare for climate disruption and the climactic and catastrophic things that are going to happen to our economy. It's not just about tourism or business as usual. I beg of you to create more rational policy that will really take into account the urgency and the importance of these times. We cannot continue to poison our soil, our water, our air and our food and think we're going to survive as a species. Time is up for that. Thank you for your comment. We're gonna to return to our initial caller in the queue. Hello, caller. You're unmuted. You're three minutes speaking now. Caller, we're still encountering quite a bit of feedback. Um, I believe you commented earlier on item two. If you can please replicate your approach to public comment on item two for item 11. Um, that may resolve the feedback issue. We'll give you a moment to hopefully resolve the feedback issue. Caller, we're going to try again. Caller, we're still getting an awful lot of feedback on our end of the line. We'll try one final time. We'll just give you a few seconds to resolve the feedback issue. You can also try calling in via your phone, via a different device. Caller, you're unmuted. Your three minutes begin now. Caller, we're still getting quite a amount of feedback on our end. We can try again later in the meeting. Uh, but for the time being, um, we're still encountering feedback, um, which means that we cannot listen to your comments, unfortunately. We have received your written comments on this issue, and we'll try again um, later in our agenda so that we can hear your verbal comments as well. Is that the end of public comment in the queue? See no additional callers in the queue. That is the end of public comment for this item. And again, caller, we can try again at the conclusion of the meeting um, pursuant to the um, public comment policy um, for the commission. Thank you, Kyle. At this point, please call the roll then. President Anand? Aye. Vice President Wan? Aye. Commissioner Bermejo is excused. Commissioner Hunter? Aye. Commissioner Sullivan? Aye. Commissioner Tompkins? Aye. And with that, the motion passes. So thank you again for your work. And yeah, uh, let's move on to the next item then. All right, the next item is item 12, director's report. The speakers are Leo Chi, deputy director, Alexa Kilty, residential zero waste senior coordinator, and Charles Sheehan, chief policy and public affairs officer. The explanatory document is the director's report. This item is for discussion. This item also includes two sub items, sub item A, 
update on the refuse rate setting process, and sub-item B, update on a reasonable food serviceware ordinance to eliminate unnecessary single-use food serviceware waste. Great. And this item is for discussion. Uh, thank you. Uh, for those of you who I haven't met, I'm Leo Chi. I'm the Deputy Director and Chief Administrative Officer for San Francisco Environment. And I am representing um, the department for Director Ju, who's not here today. Um, I'll keep it brief. I know we've had a lot of information updating you on the programmatic work that's happening, and there's additional information about the other groups in the director's report that's available to you. Um, I consulted with Director Ju, and one uh, item he wanted me to highlight is just to give a brief update on APEC, which is the Asia-Pacific Economic cooperation. Um, it's the Regional Economic Forum coming up in November. And um, the director had done some outreach to businesses in the community wanting to share information and request their participation in highlighting the work that they're doing as climate technology businesses. And we've gotten 10 responses from companies who are interested in showcasing their work. So that may be possibly being integrated as part of um, a place for participants to visit, or it may be um, connected to press events, and um, we should have a more detailed update on that happening in October, but I know we're excited that that's moving forward. Um, additionally, I wanted to um, share, um, some of you may have seen in the press, that um, Reimagining SF um, is an initiative that's been moving forward, and um, oh, our staff member was here and just left, um, but a, a shout out to, um, both the, the California Academy of Sciences as well as um, Peter Brastow on our team who've done a lot of great work on this initiative. The goal is to really bring together um, San Francisco CBOs, government agencies, nonprofits, and educational organizations to work together on increasing access to nature and ensuring that we have biodiverse green space and really looking at the ecosystems and um, benefits that the biodiverse corridors that we need have on um, our communities and the neighborhood um, wildlife and other animals. Um, related to that, um, the, our mayor, um, Mayor Breed, is one of five mayors who's participating on the Global Commission on Nature Positive Cities. This is an international community that's convened by the World Economic Forum, and it's with four other mayors on um, different continents from coastal cities, and they're um, engaging in um, just some really interesting collaborations that'll be happening in the upcoming months. And so their kickoff meeting is on the 3rd of October, and it is a virtual meeting where they'll get to um, share their visions about how we can bring more nature and have a more nature-positive urban environment in each of our cities and what we can learn from each other. So this is something that I'm really looking forward to seeing more about going forward. Um, so at this point, I'll hand off to my colleague to share the first um, sub-bullet. Um, so Alexa Kilty is going to share information about the refuse rate-setting process. Thank you. Good evening, Commissioners. Alexa Kilty. I'm on the uh, Zero Waste team the Environment Department. Um, I was here last commission meeting, so um, come, I came back to just let you know that the refuse rate process has now been concluded. 
Um, the Refuse Rate Board uh, voted on the rates um, August 31st, and I just wanted to provide you some quick highlights because there's a lot there. Um, but there is a, a small, res uh, next slide please, Kyle, thank you. Um, the rate increase, there'll be a 1.33% rate increase. This is on your garbage rates, which includes composting and recycling. It's a 1.33%, and then the next year will be a 2.55% rate increase. Um, I realize that this is cumulative, that's why you can't add the two percentages, that's why the total is 3.92% after the two years. Um, this is uh, almost the same um, rate increase that the rate board advised, it's a slightly different. Um, but the main environmental pieces that we got are um, the uh, contamination charges will be reinstated. We talked about cameras, so they're testing six cameras on the trucks to monitor contamination. Um, we'll be instituting some pre-processing technology. Our organics, our composting stream has been very contaminated. So we're uh, instituting some technology at the transfer station to pull off a lot of plastic is our main contaminant. Um, and the district cleanups, if you're familiar with this, they used to be called Gigantic 3, those are coming back. So each district will have one cleanup uh, once a year. Um, we really advocated for a three-stream system, so they'll have composting, recycling, and trash at the district cleanups. Um, in addition, we, uh, go ahead, next slide. I'm kind of, I mentioned this, the pre-processing. Um, Recology will also get a new staff person to monitor the contamination and examine the camera technology to make sure it's up to par, and perhaps next rate process will advocate for additional cameras if that works. Next slide, please. Um, and then um, I think you all know my most favorite part of the trash uh, rate process is the trash processing pilot. We are moving full steam ahead with that. Um, we're gonna be taking 1,300 tons of our trash and we're gonna bring it over to San Leandro Waste Management's facility where they do trash processing. We've already started those uh, conversations. They're going smoothly and uh, the trash processing pilot will start actually October. We want it to happen before the rain start because we don't want the holidays and the rain to affect the analysis. And the goal is to pull out as much recycling and compost the organic residuals at that facility. So I'm, I'm very excited. Once we have that data, I will be sure to come back and share that with you all. So that's all paid for through the new rate. And I'm happy to take any questions. All right, and then um, would the chair like to um, hear from um, Charles Sheehan on the reusable food service where, or would you like to ask questions? Let's pause. Uh, are there questions on this rate setting? Okay. Uh, thanks, Alexa. Okay, thank you. Yes. Next uh, presenter then. Great. And we have um, Charles Sheehan who's going to give an update on our reusable food service wear ordinance to eliminate unnecessary single-use food service wear waste. Hi there, Commissioner Charles Sheehan, Policy and Public Affairs Manager. If you recall, many months ago, um, you had passed a resolution after hearing a presentation from some of our zero waste advocates um, and staff. Um, you had passed a resolution calling on the board to take action to promote the use of reusables um, at our restaurants, at our large stadiums, um, to promote the idea of mandating that restaurants, places like Starbucks, must 
accept BYO, bring your own. And so if you go to Starbucks, you give them your mug. Instead of them giving you a single-use uh, disposable, you give them their mug. They fill it up, and they give it back to you, and so you eliminate that trash. So restaurants, BYO, reusables at the large stadiums. And the fourth um, pillar of that resolution, I believe, was um, further strengthening laws that we have on the books, laws that states have on the books um, that instruct the Uber Eats of the world, the Grub Hubs of the world, to make sure that customers that are ordering through those websites can specify what condiments, what utensils they do and don't want. And so you avoid the situation where you order takeout and they throw in 10 forks, 10 knives, 10 ketchups, and 10 everything, and you just order for yourself. Um, and so you pass that resolution and send it to the board, asking the board to work on it. And I'm here to say that you know we as staff, with you know members of the you know with the mayor's office, potential members with the board, have been working on that, and we are we are close to kind of finalizing something and moving that to the board. And so it's an update and um, also a stay tuned. And I just wanted to kind of give you a progress update on that. I don't know if there's any questions. Questions. Wait, so what's the timeline again? I know you say that it's at the final process, but what would that timeline it would be like? I think we're going to be final sometime in the next month. Oh, good. So. Okay. Uh, back to you, Deputy Director Chi. Is there anything else? No. Um, that's the full update. Please let me know if there's any questions or if there's anything we need to follow up on on your behalf. Okay. Any other discussion or comments? Well, seeing none, let's go to public comment then. Are there any members of the public who are present in the room today who wish to comment on this item? And seeing none, we'll proceed to remote public comment. Members of the public who wish to make a public comment on this item should now press star three to be added to the queue. And seeing no callers in the queue, public comment on this item is closed. Okay, next item, please. All right, the next item is item 13, new business future agenda items. The speaker is Charles Sheehan, Chief Policy and Public Affairs Officer. This item is for discussion. Thank you, Commissioners. Charles Sheehan, Chief Policy and Public Affairs Officer. Um, before I start my new business um, commission agenda item, which will be short, I do want to remind, because we have a new commissioner, um, in the room, and we also have all of next year in front of us, that um, not only is this an opportunity for you know me to talk about what staff has planned and what we need to have come in front of the commission, but it's also an opportunity for you to suggest things that you would like to come before the commission that you are thinking about that staff, staff may want to work on and come back to you again through the commission. And so it's, it's kind of a two-way conversation, if you will. Um, and so that's kind of an intro what this agenda item is. But again, also 2024 is just around the corner. And we typically end the year with a large blank slate for next year that we do need to fill. And so your help in filling that slate is very much appreciated. Um, so on that note, 
and then I'll give you the opportunity to ask questions and weigh in if you have ideas. Um, the next commission meeting is October 30th. Um, and we are planning on bringing a climate action plan update about our healthy ecosystems chapter. Um, more of a larger or broader um, update on our green business program, kind of what we've been working on. Um, potentially um, the ICCT report dealing with electrification of vehicles um, in the city. We're hoping that that will be ready. And potentially if it's ready, also the director's performance evaluation. If not, it'll be um, scheduled for the next commission meeting after that, which would be December 4. Um, so I'll pause to see if there's any questions or if anyone wants to add anything. Yes, Commissioner. One, one suggestion or request, which is that we, at some point here, um, get a presentation on um, uh, electricity storage uh, and how San Francisco compares to the rest of the state and the fire department's kind of concerns about storage and, and whether it's limiting residents of San Francisco from kind of contributing to the solutions to the climate crisis. Sure. Um, I think we're... We're working on that issue right now, and so we will have an update on that shortly, I think. There, yes. Um, yes. I just want to make an announcement that uh, I'm taking a sabbatical leave from um, mid-October to mid-January, so I'm going to miss the meeting. So after 25 years in the same CBO, I fi finally got a three-month sabbatical leave. <laughs> <laughs> And we're very happy for you. Yeah. I'm sorry, I was going to miss the meeting. <laughs> Please take the sabbatical. Um, any questions or other comments or announcements commissioners might have on future business? Okay, seeing none. Thank you, Charles. Thank and you. Let's make sure to take public comment on this item too. And seeing no members of the public in the room tonight, we'll proceed directly to remote public comment. Members of the public participating remotely who wish to make a public comment on this item should now dial star three to be added to the queue. Um, and for the member of the public who attempted to comment on item 11, they're welcome to do so at this time. And we do have a caller in the queue. Hello caller, you're unmuted. Your three minutes begin now. Can you hear me now? Yes. Oh, finally, gaps. Okay, thank you. Um, I want to know, tell you, no, it's going on again, and everything is off. I only have one computer. Um, anyway, um, I will just tell you personal story. I don't know if you can hear it or not. Can you? Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Um, I have two cancers. Uh, a friend who lived in the same place has bladder cancer. Uh, two people in the same half block took it, have cancers. It, we were all working on Mount Davidson. Uh, my dog died of cancer. Um, on Mount Davidson, which is one of the most poisoned places in the city. I'm not most poisoned generally, but most poisoned with, with herbicides. Um, and I am pretty sure that city spraying contributed to all of these things. There was a comment on next door, but the lady came before to the commission and talked about it and was generally ignored. 
but she said she got her non-Hodgkin lymphoma uh, and her dog had the same lymphoma. She was using, without knowing, the glufosate Roundup herself, and she was working on Christopher part, which was regularly sprayed, and it toxins. It should not be used. And we're only talking about herbicides, and it would be a little baby step in the right direction. You get out just the tier one or tier two synthetic herbicides out of the list and stop using them. It's really unconscious that it's done. And if you combine tier one and tier two, the picture doesn't look so great with reduction. Actually, it's not hardly any improvement from all the years since 2012, when I started attending, attending those meetings. It's not going down. It's all the same. We're all being... The causes of cancer, the main thing, is an environmental disease. Genetic play roles, but it's environmental disease. And chemical contamination is main contributor. And you're contaminating the environment all the time. Uh, and the, saying that it's just a little bit, it's not good. And saying that Vastlan is better than Garlon, it's not good. It doesn't matter how you take your arsenic, for example, with soup or with juice. Uh, and saying you reduced it by just spraying Vastlan on the same sourgrass, which doesn't hurt anything all the time on Mount Davidson, on Glen Canyon, uh, in uh, Bernal Heights. It's just impossible. The more pesticides you spray, the more natural and more biodiverse, according to you, the environment becomes. Thank you. Thank you for your comment, and thank you for your cooperation in resolving the technical issue. Seeing no further callers in the queue, public comment on this item is closed. Thank you, Kyle. Next item, please. All right, the next item is item 14, adjournment. The meeting is adjourned. The time is 7.33 p.m. Thank you for joining us. Thank you.